Hey everyone, it is Nick Bradley here and welcome to Scale Up for this week. And boy, oh boy, do we have an episode for you. So in the world of mergers and acquisitions, there are a lot of people, a lot of players, and there are people who do it really well. There are people who don't do it so well. And there are ones that I would consider very, very close friends because our values and the way that we think about this world of buying, selling, exiting companies, we have very, very similar views. But at the same time, we come at that world from very different angles and perspectives. So what you have today is, dare I say it, a fireside chat. It literally feels like three mates coming together and talking about the state of the nation in terms of mergers and acquisitions. So joining me on the show today, two good friends, as I said before, is Walker Dybul and Ryan Tansom. Now, for those of you who have been fans of the show for some time, you will know those names because they have come on the show before and we've had sort of solo episodes, solo conversations back and forwards uh, on various areas of the space. But what we thought we would do today is get together and talk about everything that we're seeing right now. You know, the state of the nation, as I mentioned beforehand, as we end 2023, as we go into 2024, because it's actually a pivotal time for mergers and acquisitions. There's a lot going on. There's a lot more people in the space. And by that, I mean, there are more private equity firms out there than ever before. There are more people becoming acquisition entrepreneurs, heaps and heaps of things, which means there is more opportunity for people to be doing really cool stuff in the mergers and acquisitions area, but it also means you've got to kind of understand how things are changing, how things are evolving, and importantly, what you can do about that to help you on your own journey. So a little bit of background on the guys for those of you who do not know who they are. So firstly, Walker Dybul, he wrote the book, as far as I'm concerned, on acquisition entrepreneurship. His book is called Buy Them Build. It's constantly listed in Forbes as a, as a must-read book in the M&A space. He's also the founder of Acquisition Lab, where he helps uh, people buy companies and become acquisition entrepreneurs. He also helps business owners scale their businesses via acquisition. And as I said, is a leading expert on that topic. I, I would go as far as to say that he coined the term acquisition entrepreneurship because people you know, didn't use it as readily as they do now after, after he kind of launched it. And for those of you who are not aware, it's really about how you become an entrepreneur through business acquisitions and something that I'm certainly very, very passionate about and something that I think people should absolutely understand because you don't have to be an entrepreneur through startup. You can do it through acquiring an already successful cash flowing business. And of course, there's Ryan Tansom. Now, Ryan, he has a huge amount of knowledge, experience. Dare I say it, he's, he's been there and done that with his own companies around how you view a business as a financial asset, right? How you think about the financial performance, the cash flow, what I would call the lifeblood of a company. He is a world expert on that stuff. And his podcast, Intentional Growth, goes deep into that. And also how you kind of think about the impact of financial on the, the, the value build of a business so you can achieve a very, very successful exit. So. Enough from me, a long intro. You can tell already that I'm excited to share this with you because this is one of the longest episodes we've ever done on Scale Up. And it really is, you know, three guys who, who love this space, 
want you to get as much from it as we have personally, just sharing our stories, sharing our perspectives to help you move forward, to get ahead, to to really be successful in this whole crazy world of mergers and acquisitions. So sit back and relax. Enjoy, as I said from the outset, this fireside chat with two good friends, Walker Dybul and Ryan Tansom. This is absolutely one of my favorite episodes of the show. Here we go. All right, so we're all here. And what's up, guys? Well, as I said, it looks it looks it looks like we're about to start the M and A boy band, the first one. Black <laughs> uh, like t-shirts, the whole piece. There yeah, we I, yeah we didn't even color coordinate, but we, it happened anyways. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll just for the listeners, uh, I'm just gonna put a container on this way. I'm super excited. I know all of us are excited for different reasons, but like when I was thinking about why I'm excited to have uh, this conversation with Walker and Nick is we've all been, I mean, I've known both you guys now for quite a while and we all have unified around the theme of like companies are assets. We can use the company to grow wealth, have fun, make an impact, whatever the heck people want to do, but we have to have that as a kind of the cornerstone. And over the years where I've seen like Walker, you mean you got the book by the, uh, by the build, you've got the acquisition lab and you're helping people from the very get go, look at it like an asset, understand how to value it. And then they need to the return. We've kind of landed in the middle of like, how do you actually do the practical stuff instead of some fictitious system? It's like the practical in between the point A and the point B and then Nick, you're there been in private equity and you're the one taking them for the through through the full circle to then end up back probably giving funds to the people that walker sent in through the acquisition lab so well there is a nice going- little circle here of it's, it's kind of like a flywheel right <laughs> yeah i like that circle instead of any other kind of circle you might have uh, thought of in that and then i just I, I i find it so fascinating how it's this topic of it's an asset and what i think i i get super excited about guys is like walker and nick you guys are, you have to do the real stuff like you have to be doing it it's not just talk I don't know. That's kind of my way of kicking it off saying, well, Hey, think, like we're here. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a nice, I mean, we, we sort of, I think came together in our respective um, circles to use that again, uh, because we have a similar affinity to this stuff. Right. And, and, and what I'll put down is the ethics behind it, doing it the right way. And, and I do believe that if you understand sort of M&A from the way that we believe it works and how we, how we talk about it, it has the ability to change lives fundamentally. And right now is a great time for that to be the message, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of people entering entrepreneurship through acquisitions, people having businesses that they want to scale the right way. Uh, and my lane has always been, how does that founder, that business owner get the true value of the work that they've put into their business, as opposed to giving it to my old employers, <laughs> private equity <laughs> firms. So I think, I think that's where we all came together with that sort of affinity, which is, which is proven to be a good friendship I, between us I, as well. I want to echo that, Nick, and also just say that, you know, one of the things that has really kind of gotten under my skin over the last 12 to 18 months in particular is, I mean, just coming from the buying businesses side, right? Like I always felt like my market was going to be, you know, my audience was going to be sort of sophisticated entrepreneurs, you know, managers at companies that wanted to make the leap, but, you know, had the skill set you know, sort of like a very sophisticated, you know, business oriented person, budding entrepreneurs even, right? Like, hey, you don't just have to start, you can also buy. And one of the things that's really happened with the power of social media is that all of these people that are like really good at marketing that aren't necessarily out there doing it like we are, have gotten really loud and they sort of talk to everybody. And it's like, hey, you literally should quit your job and buy a business because it's easy, I guess, right? And it just... Yeah. Oh hey, much. by the way, Walker, did you 
Walker, Walker, you don't even need the acquisition lab, man. All you have to do is find someone exhausted and you find them on the LinkedIn, you send them a DM and they're going to sell you their company for no money down, seller's note for 10 years, and they're going to yeah. walk away and never bother you. I'm glad we're starting here, by the way. Right I'm glad we're starting here. <laughs> um, you know what? You know what? I think, um, and I'll, I'll mention some names uh, that I think, you know, have, have to answer for, like Russell Brunson's got a lot to answer for here. Right. There's, there's some people out there who are really good at marketing and there's others. Right. And and I've, I've seen this to be true across the board that they'll put out a message called a hook. right? And the hook is usually built on either pleasure or pain. Mm -hmm. Right. So what's the most painful thing that you're going through right now, which could be I'm stuck in this situation I hate or the upside. Right then they'll put together something which makes it look easier than it is. But interestingly, I was talking to um, Dean Graciosi, right, who's been in this kind of info game for a long time. And he said that um, the completion rate of a lot of these courses is like, he said 17%, but I reckon it's less than that. I, I, that would have been high if I would I know, have. I know. And I, and I sort of said, what, you know, what does that mean? He goes, well, you know, someone signs off, they pay a couple of grand for a program, any program. We're not just talking about M&A. And, you know, you're getting maybe one in two, two in two in, sorry, two in 10 actually getting it, getting through it. And I was like, is that good? I mean, it's not great, is it? <laughs> well, and you know, and, and Nick, you and I had chatted, uh, one of our previous conversations. It reminds me a lot and Walker and I kind of tied both these things together. It's like when I read your book five years ago, it was like, I was like, this is the new rich dad, poor dad. I mean, it's like, a, it's an actual practical way of creating wealth. Real estate has been doing this game for a long time. And why I think that your book and kind of how, I mean, cause there's so many similarities, but then I look back at the real estate game and it like, I think back, back in 07, before we had sold the company, we were probably going to sell the company in 07, but we ended up doing it in uh, 2014. That happens. Is the, uh, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> actually, I'm sorry. I got the numbers wrong. It was 2011. Anyways. But my point is it was, we, I went down this route of like, go to the rich dad, poor dad seminar. And then you realize you can't do it. And then you realize that their programs aren't there to actually teach you it. It's so that they can find deal flow or finance your deal and take all the hard work that you And And I just see similarities in like what you set out into the world Walker and kind of like where the real estate kind of game just went right into their I, equilibrium. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I mean, the thing yeah. is, is like, we were the, we were the, I don't know if you want to call the acquisition lab, you know, a, a mastermind an accelerator, you know, it, it's all of these things, but we were really the first one out there, right, to, to sort of create this and say, hey, let's unpack buy side advisory and sort of try to help people navigate this noise. And now, now, I mean, there's like 24, you know, copycat competitor situations. And, you know, I kind of pride ourselves on the fact that, you know, we we have a, um, uh, you know, we've closed about 200 million in member acquisitions in the last, yeah, 12 to 18 so months. Awesome, I mean, we've got a really good that's success amazing. rate. But but the thing is, is like, we're starting to people call and they're like, so why should I pick you instead of someone else? And I'm like, I, I literally don't know. Like, like, if, if you have to ask me that question, like, I, <laughs> right. I, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to be egotistical, but like, go do whatever you're going to do. And, and what I'm seeing is like, we, we there's a kind of a new one that started and their whole pitch is look, we invest in companies, we invest in you. So like, come take my you know, what, you know, what, 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 what'll take you 24 months in the lab. We'll do it in a weekend and we'll charge you like a third of the price and we'll knock you out and then we'll invest in your company. And I'm just scratching my head. Like, don't you guys see what's happening? Like this, like they're generating their deal flow and making you pay for them. And then they're getting you as an operator. Like none of this makes sense. So, um, sorry to hijack the conversation, yeah. but no, no, you know I, what? It's, it's not hijacking it. I, um, 
I have to be cautious here of names that I don't mention because um, because I, I, I've sort of gone in and seen the ecosystems of a lot of these, right, through mm-hmm. various things. So, for example, I, I'll get invited to uh, an event, then I'll be invited from that event to come and kick the tires on certain things. Um, and they're big ones. They're really big ones, right? And they're making, I mean, one of them in particular did over 70 wow. million last year. Not kidding. The event right? off, specifically? Off, sorry? The, the event revenue or the, the amount of deal flow? And well, deals that it- the way it works as a model, right? And this is, I think, just good awareness for people listening to this is obviously, you know, there'll be an event of some sort, you know, and you might pay, you know, 500 bucks, a couple of grand to go to that event. Uh, you'll be in a room with hundreds, if not thousands of other business owners, usually business owners or budding people wanting to get into this space. They might be employed, like you said, Walker beforehand, I want to jump out of that and get into this. Um, but the room is the room is already segmented, right? So I went to one of these events and I was up up at the front because I was invited to, I was going to be speaking potentially. That was one of the things. So I had people around me that were doing eight or nine figure businesses. And that was quite interesting. But then at the back of the room, you had the people kind of, dare I say, the cheap seats who may not even have a business. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, then, and then you get invited to a lunch, right? So you've already paid whatever you paid to get there. You can get invited to a lunch and then you get pitched depending on which segment you're in the offer now the the pitch that i got because i was up the front was a five hundred thousand dollar investment yeah for a uh a kind of they're trying to give you five five hundred grand or they're asking i've got to pay five hundred grand so so they have a payment plan or was it just like that (laughs) fifty thousand a month at least come on whatever you want mate whatever you want you know the the credit credit Uh, card slips are coming out right I just think this is interesting, right? So I think it's worth unpacking for people because mm-hmm. you will, you know, if you're into this space and you're starting to vet your options, you're going to get invited to this type of thing, right? And you're going to see this. But but what happens is this is not just a course or a mastermind or whatever else. Um, some of these um, these entities out there now are offering what I would call hybrid private equity firms. Mm-hmm. So the 500 grand gets you not just coaching, mentoring, all that sort of stuff. It gets you service provision. So you can outsource your marketing, you can outsource your HR, you can outsource your CFO stuff, similar to mm-hmm. what you do, Ryan, but you're buying that as an all-in package with mentoring, with coaching, all the other things that get sold, right? And I remember in this in this room, there would have been no less than, there was only a few of us at this lunch, there would have been 30 or 40 business owners at this particular bit I was in. And whether it was real or not, I saw at least six sales happen in that room at that lunch. So do the math, Yeah. right? It's- and maybe some of them were pretend or whatever. But then in another room somewhere else where they're not serving lunch, they're probably doing coffee and biscuits. They're pitching a 15K offer, mastermind. Wow. It's, and it's just, it's just interesting. And I don't know. Very, I'm, I'm, that was a very gracious adjective, Nick. <laughs> interesting. You know, I'm, conscious, I'm conscious that, you know, I like to collaborate and whatever else. Yep. I'm conscious that, you know, there are some people who are probably getting really good value out of that. So I don't want to judge it necessarily to say hey, it all doesn't work. Yep. But, but. The model, the business model is stack them high. You know, Hormozzi's doing this a little bit with his, hey, I'll give you everything for free, getting stupid amounts of leads. And then he's selecting, and he probably is putting money in, but he's being able to select an incredible deal flow for investment of which he can then flip these companies and do crazy mm-hmm. amounts with. His setup, from what I've seen, is actually pretty good. So I don't know. I'm not trying to judge it. Yeah, no, for me, I, it's I think it's about- fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm tracking, Nick. And I, you guys, so here's how I've reconciled with some of these topics. 
So back back there is Outlive by Peter Atia. I feel like Nick, you've already read the book. I don't know what you Walker. <laughs> of course, yeah. What's up, <laughs> <Come on. laughs> and so here's here's why I'm bringing this up. So that book is like 500 pages, and it's all about how to outlive the the normal, essentially shitty existence that a lot of humans have for the last 18 or uh, uh, 10 to 15 years of their life to actually be you know healthy until you, you know, kick the bucket. Well, when I, I got done reading that book and I looked at my wife and I said, here's the deal. I'm going to save you probably 40 hours. This is a 500 page book that proves without a scientific or without any doubt that we should get eight hours of sleep. We should wake up and go for a three mile walk. We should then eat food that we can pronounce. And then we should have a purpose in life. <laughs> like that's it. Like how, it's just how, how, did that, how did that work for you, Ron? She went okay, <laughs> and and but it was so fascinating. Why I think that this relates to the M and A valuation, all this stuff. It's so damn complicated. The shit that we talk about all the time: weighted average cost of capital. You pull out the three statements. I mean, all of that stuff. The entrepreneur who's the visionary, risk taker. You know, the personality. It they know how to create revenue and create value out of nothing. And then the, the the cash flow starts to happen and they don't know these things and they're willing to, what I hear out of that story, Nick, is that someone's willing to write a $500,000 check because they don't understand this stuff and they don't either have time to learn it. They don't want to learn it. They can't, whatever the reasons are, it's the, the Advil versus, or that's like the, the fat pill versus the, I've said to my, my coworkers, a lot, I sell hard work. Yeah. And it's totally. not a clickbait. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, if, if, if back to our marketing friends, though, that, that's not the slogan you put on the on the front of a sales page, right? <laughs> no, I can tr- trust me. I'm aware. Like, trust me, you sign up. We're going to tell you all the things you're missing, and it's going to be a lot I of mean, work. I mean, Nick, on, on, the, on the sell side, right, this, this sort of clickbait is, you know, um, uh, and, and I, this is a genuine question, really, for both of you guys in terms of, like, building the businesses and, and everything. I mean, you know, I, I also broker online based businesses exclusively in the sub $25 million space, right? I think, I think Nick, you do a lot bigger, but, um, the, you know, the, the concept is every once in a while I'll get someone to come that comes to me and they're like, look, like I know someone who sold for, you know, enter country club multiple, right? You, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, like, like, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The what we call the fu money yeah. type of level. Well, yeah, we're getting vet that. clinics are going for twenty seven yeah, times EBITDA these days. Exactly. Guys. I heard so, so, so I mean, you know, do you do you experience that where it's like, hey, how do I actually sell for you know an eight times EBITDA or pick pick the number you like ten, whatever? You know, I mean, it happens, but it's not yeah. normal, right? And everyone kind of wants this like super premium superhero exit. Uh, I, Nick, I you, mean, you, yeah, Nick, you take that first, and then I, because I think your this is is going to be interesting. Two yeah, I mean, different what I will draw on here, yeah, absolutely. Let's 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 double double team on this. Um, what I find interesting, right, is p- people will come to me, and my whole brand is high value exit, right? Highvalueexit.com. That's my brand, right? Um, and what I'm really educating these business owners on is how to navigate the pathway from they've already built decent foundations in a business and how they can do certain things that are going to be very specific things that are going to allow them to be attractive, usually to a private equity sale, but can be can be um, a strategic as well. But what I find is interesting is that the majority just don't know. So they might talk to their mate at the country club who's turned up in the new Aston Martin and, you know, just about to buy the plane. And, you know, they've got a story. What I'll say is, listen, you know, 
that could be a real story. It does happen, right? I've seen it happen. I've sat on the opposite side of the table and been involved in writing that check. But the point here is there's a figure that your business is worth now and there's a figure that your business could be worth, right, based on a lot of different factors, not just how you build it, also the market, the timing, all these things. The thing that you've got to be convinced about is that you are not leaving money on the table and importantly, you're hitting a number that you feel is fair exchange for what you've done. Is it eight times? Is it 15 times? Is it a hundred times? <clears throat> Let's work that through. What I often say to people is, you know, if your objective is to build a unicorn, you know, a business that's valued over a billion dollars, that's a pretty stupid objective. I'm not going to, I'm not going to judge you, but you know, you're doing that for ego. You're not necessarily doing that for generational wealth, uh, changing your life, freedom, everything we spoke about. So, and I'll finish off by saying this. Sometimes I have to use uh, terms within my marketing my, my business model is not scale them high, sell them cheap sort of thing. I'm very mm -hmm. exclusively working White with a few kind of stuff. people. Exactly. It's very concierge level. But sometimes I have to use terms to get people to listen, right? The terms that I use and, and they're real terms is this is going to be the biggest financial transaction of your life bar none. So you don't want to screw that up. And, and more recently, I've been using this concept of prize versus prey, right? Because I want to make it very, very clear to people that, you know, back in my previous life, I used to hunt businesses for a living right? I was, I was hunting your business. You were the prey. I want to buy low to sell high, right? So you're going to be dealing with me, you know, the old me in your future world, if you want to create a high value exit. So you have to understand that you need to be the prize. You need to have everyone fighting for the thing that you've created. You don't want to be the prey, the thing that I'm going to snare, do things to and make more money than you've ever dreamed of. And you're going to get hardly any of it. So I just want to make that point. You do sometimes have to use good marketing to get people to pay attention but I think it's what you do after that, how you deliver the the service or the educate, whatever that is. It's how you do mm -hmm. that where the ethics comes into it, in my opinion. Well, and I, I love that, Nick, and and how I'll provide a a different perspective because I think everything you said is true. And here's how, like, and, and specifically in our academy, and I, there's this topic that I bring up in all of our workshops and in, in our education is that. I would answer that question, Walker, like the person that got, let, let's say that someone hired Nick and they, like I, I was joking around about the vet clinic that got 27 times EBITDA, but that's mm -hmm. actually a true story. Really? <laughs> and my immediate, my immediate response was, did you have the cure for horse cancer that I was not aware of? And so, but like that, there's obviously a possibility, but here's the story that was being told. So let, let's say Nick, that that person did everything that you just talked about, understood what they wanted. They understood the value, the value that they provided and then hired you. And then they jammed up that price for the premium that they deserved. I would call that in our material using our words as a strategic transaction value where like the purpose of the deal drove the premium up, right? There was a reason that that buyer bought the company and supposedly the narrative was from the investment thesis of the PE firm that probably did it on a napkin was there's a shortage of shortage of vet uh, veterinarian veterinarian excuse me in America so now I pay 27 times EBITDA I mean that sounds like that was the extent of the investment thesis but there was a reason for the the premium where I would so that I'm going to compare the strategic transaction value to then the intrinsic financial value that we help people on our services side on the financial dashboard modeling and then the CFO services side. We talk about the intrinsic financial value is what the person can control while they're operating the business. And it's about generating future sustainable cash flow. So we help people having the highest amount of probability that they get the valuation that they want within the reality of the financial lens. Hypothetically, yep. like exactly. if you have a million dollars or two million dollars in cash flow, or if you want to go from a million to two million dollars in cash flow, 
when I do the deal at 2 million bucks and I wanted to sell it to one of you two, the, the cash flow from operations has to finance the debt, the, the taxes, the the distributions that are desired and the, the future investments of the company for the next buyer. Not so, it, so it's taking away all of the stuff from the third party stuff that could be unique to the timing that is definitely real, like you said, Nick. But like if the person doesn't know when all that stuff's going to happen, they can still focus on the cash flow. And then my last comment, you guys are just going to crack up. So how I get this across to people in our training is what, what they, they learn all this stuff. And then we go through the financial education of the three statements and I get to the cash flow statement and I'm like, capital contributions, debt, taxes, and cash at the end of the month. And I had a guy go, you mean like actual <laughs> cash? <laughs> I was like... Yeah, like the, the like the thing you pay your mortgage with. And it's just so fascinating to me that people forgot to look at the only statement that has the constraints in it that make everything real of how do you actually buy and sell a company and make the value outside of all the kind of the headline stuff that is still real that like you're talking about, Nick. Yeah. And I think I think from that because it's interesting actually when the way you explain that's really interesting in terms of the stuff because a lot of the stuff i focus on is everything outside of that not to say that's why we've been talking to each other value right in terms of what you said but it's it's the clever trickery pokery that you you can do outside of that to influence the transaction which has more to it but um yeah i mean good question walker (laughs) (laughs) what i remember like like during i don't know when this was it was uh 2021 when the when the fba aggregators were just going bonkers i mean you know there was 14 billion raised and like not enough businesses to buy and they were just like negotiating over each other but at the end of the day everyone was still getting like three and a half times cash at closing and all these big multiples was just deferred compensation and earnouts and all the rest of it and I would just get these phone calls from, you know, Amazon sellers and they'd be like, look, I want to sell my business, but I'm not, I'm not selling for anything less than a nine times. And I'd be like, thank you so much for telling me that in the first five minutes, instead of waiting until minute 90, have a good day. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to, I can't help you. Like, you know, these, these things are, are just, it just gets, it was getting so bonkers and it was all bullshit. And, uh, can I cut on the show? Yeah. And it comes back to, oh yeah, the pe- people are out there. People are out yeah. there selling that stuff, you know, particularly on that side because they want to get mm-hmm. the deal flow in and then, you know, it gets it's someone great. signed to a contract and then, and then the reality of the delivery, it's like that, that whole saying of, uh, yeah. over-promised and under I had a guy in the acquisition lab well, this week who, um, uh, made an offer on a, on a business at, for like $5 million and he had zero intention to pay 5 million. He's like, no, I'm going to get it for like 3 million. And I was like, um, when did you send this LOI? And he's like, you know, yesterday or whatever. And I was like, okay, and now we're talking about it. And he's like, yeah. And so I need to figure out how to whittle this all down and get the price that the company's really worth. So, you know, obviously, number one, um, he he uh, was singing, was sitting out. Someone told him to fling out LOIs with purchase prices they had no intent to actually close on. So he's tying up the deal. He's wasting the entrepreneur's time. He's wasting the the broker's time, right? He probably, you know, if he wasn't talking to me, he probably would have been told he could buy it with no money out of pocket, you know, or whatever, you know, no skin in the game. I think they do do this, Walker. I think, I mean, I, I, I've seen this strategy beforehand where you get these, um, these people are told literally just, just get people yeah. into these situations and, and they're sending out hundreds it, of letters. Yeah. Well, and, it. and, and it's, it's, it's so fascinating guys. Cause like I was telling you guys when we, when we were teeing up this conversation that, 
I talk about you Walker and all my Vistage pre presentations and stuff because like it's a new category of buyers that everybody needs yeah. to be aware of. And 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 specifically specifically because I think for a, a huge subset of companies, I think an acquisition entrepreneur is potentially one of the only exits that'll actually mm. work for someone. Because in if you look at the US Census Bureau, I talk about a lot on my show all the time of like how many companies are below five million in revenue. It's ninety five percent of companies. And so if you think about the, in the middle market, there's you know, like 2% between uh, 5 million and 100 million. A lot of these people are going to need to find someone that actually has the talent, the skills, and the financing to buy these companies because it's a dental practice, it's a physician's practice, it's a CPA, it's a welder, it's an electrician, it's an HVAC technician where you need the license or the expertise to do the work and, it, and the math does not work unless the person has the job and takes it over. So I, I'm saying all that first to say it is an important category that you have helped pioneer Walker, but verbatim from one of uh, the people, and I think it has a lot to do with how we started this conversation of the trickery that's out, going on out there, is when I bring this up after I give them a lot of explanation, people go, oh, that makes a bunch of sense. But immediate reaction is, those condescending you-know-what think that they can just come in here after graduating school, zero money down, buy my company because I've been doing things apparently wrong for 30 years. Totally. It's almost verbatim from a, a recent a recent group. And I was like, yeah, like you're right. <laughs> like, And so how? Uh, any thoughts about I, how sure. you see yeah, that? No, thank you. There, look, I mean, for acquisition entrepreneurs, there's really like a huge range, right? And what you just described was the sort of like, you know, traditional search funds, or at least inspired by the traditional search fund, self-funded searcher person who's looking for a business with zero risk and recurring revenue and home services. And, and you know, they've been sold this sort of like package. Okay. And they're like, okay, I'm going to go buy that. It's like, great. But you've got the whole gamut, right? Like, I mean, you know, I've got the four quadrants of ways to add value and acquisition, all the rest of it. But, but the thing is, is that when you think about acquisition entrepreneurs, um, I, I want you to also be thinking about independent sponsors because it's the same thing. It's just larger transactions. So I made an offer on a business um, about 12 months ago for 180 million. Okay. And I had the debt piece kind of secured and I say kind of, cause it was kind of, um, but you know, it was a real offer and it was, it was about seven, a little over seven times uh, EBITDA. Okay. And um, I, I didn't get the deal. For various reasons but i mean you know i'm also looking at you know 35 million dollar deals 50 million dollar deals and i'm i am an acquisition entrepreneur right i mean there's there's nothing different about that so i think that there's different levels of sophistication and um again i think the problem with with you know all of the like noise that got catapulted off of by then build if i can be so egotistical to say it like that, but there's literally no one talking about this shit. I'll okay, give it when to the you. Book came. I like what I like didn't want to release it because like <laughs> I was, people are going to think my logic is wrong or something. It was so different from what the what the what the conversation was. But all of the stuff that's sort of come 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 after this has really just all been about everything you're talking about, right? And like, hey, you can do it. And mm -hmm. like, there's this little lie that's going on out there, which is like, hey. I know you've never bought a business before. However, everything that you've done in your life up until right now has prepared you to buy a business right now. And it's like, yeah, no, yeah, no. Talk to talk to a first time buyer 30 days later and they're like, oh my God. And you're like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know the, you know what this reminds me of uh, is the Zach 
oh, I can never Gilfinac. I can never pronounce his last name. Um, there's a there's this meme where it says, yeah, yeah, I can't either. Who's that? Who's that? Is this an American thing? <laughs> I think yes. he's in the Hangover. Actor. I think he was in the Hangover. Isn't that a British movie? Yeah. So, so, so there's this, there, there's this, this, uh, these, it's a meme with two, the first picture is like, oh, you're going to be a parent. Oh, good for you. And oh, by the way, it's so great. And being a parent's the best thing ever. And then it's parent 30 days after kid. <laughs> ha ha, welcome to hell. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I, I had a question for Walker actually on this because I think this this is interesting because just to set the seat the scene here. So I was looking at the st- statistics of private equity firms and how they've grown sort of post COVID, and there's something like eight thousand now in North America. There was before COVID around about four and a half thousand. Okay, and the reason is That's they're right. not private equity firms, right? They're people with websites, and where the data comes from, you know, how do they work it out? Who knows? But in your world where you've got these people coming in, uh, learning from you, do you find that there is still this massive, what I call scaling gap? So even if they can do a deal, they don't know what to do with the business after they've got it. And therefore the business can go backwards. They could lose it, that sort of thing. Okay. Great question. Um, I think that, I think that the types of buyers that that I work with. Let me say like this, let me say like this. Um, and then we'll, and then we'll loop through it. So, so it's a good observation. I think that a lot of first time buyers don't really understand what they're, what they're getting into. Um, however, what I would say is, is that the first company I bought, you know, I took this big personal guarantee. I wrote a check. It was 8 million in revenue. It had just under 50 employees, two shifts and all this equipment. And I had to go to the office and I went in there and I went out and we made the announcement. And then, you know, I basically went back to the bathroom and threw up. It was just like, it was just like, okay. (laughs) And then we went into a recession and like everyone around me was going out of business and all the rest of it. And just like, you know, owning this company through this, you know, tumultuous uh, environment was, was really terrible, but I felt like I was as equipped as I could be going into it. All right. I ended up selling that company um, for seven figures about seven years later. Okay. All the debt was paid off, believe it or not. And like, you know, there was tough times. Like, you know, I had, I had, um, um, there was a year I didn't take a salary, right? That cash flow statement, Ryan, that you're talking about, right? You know, and I've had mm-hmm. the, the sort of benefit of having, you know, three seven figure exits now of companies that I've bought and sort of, you know, led and, and sold. And so I think that, you know, when you look at, there's a guy named Michael Kitsis who writes for financial advisors, right? And one of the things that he talks about mm-hmm. is, listen, financial advisors, if you interact with anyone who is self-made, all right? There's no version of reality outside of inheritance or anything else that their net worth is $5 million or above. I've been doing this for decades and that's just the deal. Like if you're an employee and you have a W-2 and you like save your money, even if you're high paid, you know, you might be able to get to like 4 million in net worth by yourself, but you're not going to be able to break through Mm -hmm. this $5 million, you know, range. And, you know, this is a long way, Mm -hmm. Nick, of saying like, you got to get in the game right? If you want, if you want to win. Okay. And so the thing is, is like, I'm yeah. like, there's nothing. Yeah. You have to take this leap of faith and then you just have to like run down the street while you're like getting shot and break your leg and then sell your business. You're like, I could do that again. Like now I know how to do that. <laughs> well, and, and, and you just described when we were talking about like, yeah, we sell hard it. work, like that's the reality of it. And it, it's just, it's just, like it's so dysfunctional that people are saying anything yeah. other than that. And I have two story, two quick stories to to highlight your the same topic is 
I had a guy that called me. He had been through one of these programs. It was not yours, Walker. And he calls me up. He's like, Ryan, I've been listening to your podcast. I think I did things out of order. And I'm like, yeah, I'll explain more. And he's like, well, I was an IT engineer making a few hundred grand, bought, an, uh, bought a yep. uh, home services company with an SBA loan, personally guaranteed everything. All like absolutely sound mm -hmm. strategy. However, COVID hits, supply chain issues. And so what happened is he did the whole financing. All the numbers probably worked out for the evaluation, the bank, the underwriter, everybody. So everybody agreed that this was a good deal at the beginning. I guess I think that's the important part that there was a lot of eyes to make this whole thing work. And then salaries go up by 20%. His, his working capital, like the inventory and the crap you need, to, you know, where everybody's got your money, but you like he, it went, it went like through the roof by like a half a million bucks for this size yeah. of company it was a big deal. He's like, Ryan, about this company haven't taken a paycheck in 20 months i've got an extra 500 grand in inventory i can't service my debt and i got this stupid company and i wish i mean the poor guy it's like if someone would have said to him like you said walker here's the deal you're gonna get kicked in the shin you're gonna you lose an arm you're gonna get a bandage in like in my my last uh, the second part of that story is i was sitting down with my director of sales when we were financing our receivables my, my family business quarter million dollar payroll every two weeks needed to, we couldn't stop selling because I would take my POs, sell them to the bank for 90% funding. That's how the whole machine was working. And our, we had a very, very, very key employee that had a drug problem that we found out and we paid for him to go to treatment for a, a month and it almost wow. tanked the business because it was the right human thing to do. And I don't know about you guys, but I've never taken a class in school that says on a multiple <laughs> choice, if you had to judge whether keep, <laughs> you keep the $20 million business, you send this guy, you know what I mean? Like, like, how do you, other than, well, I can tell you, game, I can tell you the private equity response to that. Um, next, just to add on this, cause I think it's an interesting debate, right? So where I have a concern, it's it's not so not so much to say that of course you've got to get in the game you've got to learn all those things. It's when people take on something and they just have no real capability to even yeah. even learn on the job, right? And and they've done a, a no oh, yeah. money down seller finance deal. They can't make the payments. The business has gone backwards. It go whatever happens there in some sort of debenture. Who knows, right? And and in some cases they're leveraging this against SBA loans. Mm -hmm. And right, you know they're buying into the idea that they can buy this business and do all this sort of stuff, but then they end up on the bankrupt tip really quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, I know in your, in your program and how you teach it, Walker, you're very discerning about who you bring in. Right. But in the mass appeal of this and the marketing we spoke about earlier, that doesn't seem to be happening. And I'll finish by saying, even though I think, and I'll be, you know, cocky and arrogant as I tend to be as an Australian private equity, you know, in terms of business scale up is, is gold standard stuff. The stuff we do is clinical militant, discipline focused off the charts, precise, right? But we still screw it up. Like the number of turnarounds that I've been involved in where everyone did everything they could to think that this was a good deal in terms of due diligence, all the stuff mm -hmm. that we would expect, but there was still something that got the thing and that's private equity, yeah. right? So what's, what's this person who's, I don't know, come out of a job and bought a business, but they've never, they don't know anything about that. So and that's Nick, where I think there's a big issue. You're, you're spot on. And, and I'm, I can't argue outside of it uh, other than to say that when, when buy then build was, was done, when I wrote it, I sat on it for nine months and didn't publish it. Cause I was like, if I publish this book, someone's going to read it and then they're going to go buy a company, which is like effing crazy. Right. And, and then, and then I thought to myself, <laughs> yeah. and, and, th and again, this took nine months. Like I really, I would walk around in the morning with my coffee and just be like, all right, my book's done. Like, how do I really feel about this? And I got to the point where I was like, 
every single book ever written on entrepreneurship ever is like, quit your job, leave the walled palace with like no supplies and like build this thing from nothing. And I was like, I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> Cause I'm an anchor. I'm an anchor in revenue infrastructure and earnings. And what I'm trying to do with buy then build again, the original, the original plan was to expand how entrepreneurs think. And I and like, I'd be in these rooms of entrepreneurs. Like, you know, I did startups and, and, you know, all the, all the, all the entrepreneur programs and the accelerators. And, 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 and I would, I started to get introduced as the guy that bought and sold companies. And I was like, okay, number one, that sounds dope. But number two, you guys are completely missing the point. I'm just like you. I just like am buying the companies and running them. Right. And then I'm learning about transactions and everything we're talking about. So it's like, how do I buy it? How do I grow it? How do I exit? Right. And like that, that was just the game. So, so to me, the big lesson is that I don't care where you are, but in business acquisition is equally as important as innovation. Right. And the thing is, is like, if you're mm-hmm. going to leave your job and go start a business from scratch, or you're going to leave your job and go buy, you know, a sub $5 million company. Okay. There's pluses and minuses to both of these equations and both of them are completely crazy. Right. However, However, mm. just to you know, argue the other side for a minute. My first job out of school, I was uh, I worked at one of the biggest banks in the world, and I was laid off with six thousand people eleven months later, and was like, "Wait a minute, how secure is this?" <laughs> so you know, well, it, it's no, risk. Well, I mean, there's no, I, I talk about this a lot on my show. There's there's no security in, in that, and I got a good friend who's in banking actually, coincidentally, and I think in the last uh, let's say three years, he's had six jobs. Right. And right. he's kind of curious right. what I'm doing these days because I kind of left the financial services. But he's like, he goes, oh, you know, you were, you were always more entrepreneurial than me. And I go, dude, I'm not, I'm not an entrepreneur. I just don't like to, to not have exactly. control over my income. <laughs> right. right. Like well, Nassim Taleb in Anti-Fragile literally talks about how the Uber driver has more security and is more anti-fragile than the corporate W-2. And yeah. I, I went, like that part of that book was so fantastic because of what you're talking about. But I want to go back to... So I want to I want to hear what you guys think about the narrative I've been telling myself kind of like as I picture the macroeconomics of why is this all a thing? Like, why is it that we've been teaching people or not we, but like there's the noise of go buy a company with SBA loans, your money down, or it's super easy or all of this stuff. So here, because I get the people in the middle of the shit storm, right? They're like, all right, we're in the program. I got 9 million in debt. Haven't taken a salary in three years. Like what in the hell do I got to do to make this whole thing worth it? Or it's the opposite. I'm printing money and I don't know what this thing's worth. So here's there's two observations that I want to quickly unpack and hear your guys' thoughts. One is that I think there's a macroeconomic factor of why there's such a volume of people that don't understand this stuff. And the second part of what they don't understand, my biggest observation, we've had almost 600, I think it's like 500 and some people go through our training program, the Intentional Growth Academy. And the biggest observation is people don't understand how companies are valued. Just imagine if the entire U.S. economy, no one understood how to value a house. Like, what in the hell would are, we are do? You suggesting they Is it know? like, how would you? That example. I think you're giving too much credit here. Because <laughs> like, and I, I almost push it to one other step. I know you've got a, a question here or a point. 
is I don't think it's just about valuation. I don't think people understand finances. Well, okay, okay, this is where I was Emily. going with this, Nick. It's, well, it's two parts of this because the way you value a company is by understanding the cash flow statement. And so, and like, what's the risk of that cash flow statement in the future? And so here's the, here's the macroeconomic issue that I think led to so many people. And I might be out of my mind, guys. But like, so when I think about 09 to 2023, you got 14 years of 0% interest on money mm. for the most part what has happened so if you if you stabbed yourself with adrenaline i mean i know nick you do ultras and all that stuff and you just take the adrenaline and go woo and you're like well like you every just, day <laughs> every day and you it's not the natural energy of natural good behavior what i watched is like it's like you everybody stepped on the conveyor belt in the airport walking next to the normal reality where they're just flying where you almost Here's what I saw. People, especially my old business, you could only look at the income statement and be fine because the demand of the consumers, the balance sheets of the consumers were great. Every business was able to buy more shit because they had zero, you know, like the low financing. So when you look at a company's financials, you look at the income statement, you're like, it looks great. Well, it's like my old business, we were a distributor. So we'd have million eight in inventory million five in receivables. We'd have a million two in payables. I just talked about $5 million. It's not ours in our bank account. So I don't think, I mean, if you think about, and in, in, so in 09, if you had the average business owner who was 55 at that point, now there's 65 or so. Yep. You, you, you had 15 years, roughly, well, 10 to 15 years where people just didn't have to have that discipline of looking at the, or the cash flow statement to say, I have a finite amount of resources, cash that needs to go to taxes, distributions and reinvest back into my company. And I have to use that decision with discipline to figure out how I'm going somewhere. They didn't have to do that because they just looked at the income statement. And so then therefore we don't even understand how companies are valued. Because if someone goes and buys a company with a $5 million SBA loan for 10 years, you have to pay the $40,000 monthly payment. And you have to be confident that you're going to be able to pay that into the future. And if you can't see that, you're just guessing. And I don't know. I This is what I see is how few people understand that third statement which tells most of the story i'll tell you i'll tell you this and this is kind of looking backwards as well over the last say 10 to 15 years you've just highlighted why the private equity firms made so yeah. much money mm -hmm. right? because they they you know like it or not they do understand it right and mm -hmm. they do understand capital structuring they know how to leverage debt they know how to to you know to you know manipulate that to some extent in terms of what investments are going to drive future value and so they'll go into a, a business owner and they'll put a you know, some money on the table for the business. The business owner, as you said, doesn't know the value anyway. They just see a number, but it's the clever structuring and, and the leveraging of the market conditions, which allows the private equity firm to, you know, in some cases, I always say a three to five times return on invested capital or, or multiple on invested capital, MOIC mm -hmm. is what they're looking at, right? But back in the in the heyday, they were, they were exceeding five to eight times. <laughs> so you think about that for a second. If they're putting, let's say, you know, 100 million to work, they're making 800 million back within a usually a three to five year window. It's a good there's return. No asset, there's no <laughs> name an asset class other than I don't know Bitcoin when it was a NFTs uh, for about eight, eight months. Do, do NFTs still exist? <laughs> I don't know. I made the joke. I, I made the joke in my previous recording, so I had to bring it up. It was top of mind. <laughs> and, I, and SPACs. What happened to SPACs? Are they still around? <laughs> exactly. It's uh, it's fascinating, isn't it? Like in in I was talking to a guy that was at a. Uh, one of these conferences, probably Nick, that you're referring to, it was one of the ones that's all over social media. And I was asking him, I'm like, 
because they have a fund and they do uh, MES financing. So they're really concerned about the ability to pay back. So you think about the discipline that they're putting in, they're taking subordinate risk to everybody else to get their money back. And I was like, what's the chatter going on, man, with everybody else? And he goes, because, you know, commercial real estate the next two years, like good freaking luck. And I know that the private equity funds have got to have the same dynamic as the as the real estate funds. It's just not getting as much attention. And and he said that the conversation was, well, they're going to have to do something, right, everybody? And I'm going, that is privatized upside and socialized downside. That is not capitalism. I'm like, we have lost the actual definition of risk adjusted return people i don't even know if people even know what that is anymore like and I, that's a generalization but i don't know if you're seeing that nick too or like i'm going like well, these people have been making bets just hoping that it's work, working out uh, there's a lot well the problem you've got right <clears throat> is that and i forget the exact figure the figure that gets um quoted around is you know four four trillion dollars of capital one deployed across you know high net worth family office private equity yeah. funds in north america again and you know the whole thesis there is if that's not being deployed that's a problem i know that personally from sitting in the private equity firms i mm -hmm. used to have to do um agms annual general meetings and talk about all sorts of stuff that we're going to buy even though you know those things weren't even close to deals just to keep the uh, institutional investors happy so you've got this kind of situation which i think is interesting for people to understand because it actually it's an opportunity as well mm -hmm. and it's still an opportunity right now is that people who have raised money right, from high net worth individuals or institutions have to deploy that money, right? And as a result of that, they'll take big risks and make big bets quite often because it's easier for them to do that and lose than it is for them to miss out on being able to raise their second fund, their third Nick, fund, their fourth fund. Can you, yeah, well, can you well, Nick, I, you ahead, know, this, this comes up, I mean, we, look, we're talking about, you know, SBA loans and like, oh my God, you have all this risk, like you got to make the payments and all the rest of it. Private equity has learned two or three times uh, that you have to have a certain percentage of equity in the deal in order to protect yourself from market cycles. Nick, when, when these private equity firms are deploying capital, what percentage of equity versus debt are they putting down into these transactions? So it's changed a lot. And this is where it's interesting. It's a good question again. So obviously when, when money is cheap, yeah. right? Interest rates are low. They, they absolutely throw as much debt as they possibly can into the businesses. And then they usually put, this is where, this is a trick actually, and I'll try not to make this too technical. I was involved in a business where we had 15% interest okay. on that money. Okay, so the, the, the money is borrowed at let's say 1%, but it's laden on the business at 15%, okay? okay? And that different, that differential is money that goes back to the PE yeah. firm, the investors, yep. okay? So the answer to your question, you know, you might be looking at 20%, 30% that's going in as, as equity and the rest is debt. Got it. Now, and, and that changes. So that's just, a, that's just a, a, some of my experience. But here's the issue, right? right? Money's not cheap anymore, okay? But the investors are used to signing off that type of equity equation. Now they can't get away with that. So, that, so you know, I haven't worked in the PE world directly like I used to a few years back, but I hear now there's a lot more equity that has to go in because right. the cost of capital is higher. What I'm looking at right here, guys, is a, a report. So that's an interesting dynamic to understand. Sure. It, it, well, there's a, it's a direct impact, right? Because I mean, like if you're trying to keep that 20, 80, 80, 20 kind of equation, like the value has to, has to go down because it's I, why, I mean, it's why valuations have dropped in the last 18 yeah. months or I'm, certainly since COVID. Now it's not a COVID impact, right? It's a macroeconomic impact because of interest rates and, and I suppose economic instability. 
Well, and if it, the 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 data I'm looking at right here is from it's a subscription of a um I, I get the information through Butcher Joseph, an investment banker that they uh they've subscribed to where that it's 400 private equity firms aggregate all their transaction data and they talk about the deal structures, debt to equity, multiples. Multiples have gone down in different sectors on average, like one to one and a half times or one one to one and a half turns. And the average interest rate is 9.5. Hmm. So just, just take that equation. There you go. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's not three or four. So therefore it's just eroding out of the cash flow, therefore the valuation. And it's but just- it's still the- the reason this is important to understand, I'll just finish this point and then jump, jump in. The reason this is important to understand is, um, and I often talk about price and terms all the time when we're talking about the transactions is, you know, I'll put a price in front of you. Again, this is my old private equity hat on that makes you think you're going to make you know more money than you ever need, but then I'm just going to screw you on the terms. And the terms is where some of these points come into play. So, you know, you're not really going to make much money on your earn out and other things that you're doing because- you know, you're going to get laden with all these other things that I've decided right. to do once I take control. Mm-hmm. So, so Nick, these are all watch out, super important you, things to understand. Nick, for, for my listeners, would you do us a favor and maybe give a little bit more color to why it's such a huge incentive for the PE firms to have to go buy things? Mm-hmm. And why I think that that's all like within a, within a container of this is if there's that much money raised, I go back to, and I'll have to send it to you guys if I haven't yet, but the U.S. Census Bureau of how many companies are over $100 million in revenue, it's 20000 So, like, there's a limited supply. Like, if you actually took the couple trillion dollars as the equity and then you did 80% debt, they could buy the entire private market in America probably a couple times over with the amount of money that's been raised. So, like, what the hell is everybody's goal? And so then within that container, like, why are... Why is there still such an incentive to go continue overpaying potentially or having an in healthy or unhealthy deal structure with these deals? So, I mean, there's, there's a number of different answers to the question, right? So as I said beforehand, the, the whole, the whole thesis thing is that I'll talk just about the private equity, um, how they win. Okay. So unlike venture capital where, you know, you might be getting 20% of your bets working out if you're lucky, maybe even less private equity expects to have about. 60 to 70% success rate. So it's, it's, it's the higher end of the quotient. So that still means that three or four bets aren't going to work. And equally, right, the fund is back to my sort of, you know, return on invested capital. Some deals are so spectacular that one scale up and exit can absolutely drive the whole fund return. And mm. then any, and, and the way this works is they'll have deals in place with the institutional investors. Anything additional to that, a lot of that is going to, a high, high percentage is going to go back to the, um, the partners of the firm. Okay, so there are situations where they'll overpay for something or whatever else because they don't they just want to spend the money, right? They've already made the money on another investment or whatever else. And the quicker they can spend the money, the quicker they can raise their next fund. Now, what's important about that? There's two ways that private equity gets paid. You have quite high management fees. You know, that can be anywhere between two and four percent of the fund. Okay, so it's it's not it's not uncommon for a in a a mid-market private equity firm. It's not uncommon for a firm partner, but to be closing, taking home a million bucks a year, just in management fees as their kind of salary, right? Then you've got the carry that happens afterwards in terms of kind of the, you know, the money that's made after transactions, everything's been paid back and the percentages they get from that. So I can't talk about the details, but when I've been involved in some of the sort of bigger transactions, the ones that have been over a billion dollars, it's not uncommon for one of the firm partners to walk away with a nine figure check at the end of that. We should all start a private equity firm. Okay. Just... (laughs) <laughs> oh, there you go. 
<laughs> I, I would say it's a, it's really interesting. I, I would Walker. like to create a new type of private equity firm, but 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 yeah, this is this is you know I'm answer, I'm sort of going into the detail of how this all kind of works. Mm -hmm. But if you understand the mechanics of these things and why a private equity firm will overpay or why they'll go chasing a, a big asset, a lot of them are reverse engineering the next phase. They're reverse engineering two things: the exit that's going to come from the investment that they made, however they decide to scale that through roll up or whatever. And they're also uh, looking at the um, the new fund that's going to come in and how they leverage that. And they're also looking to kind of, um, I suppose, exhaust the carry that's going to get them a bigger payday. So the biggest transaction that I've been involved in on a multiple perspective, um, we, we didn't do the transaction, but we lost out to a private equity firm in Germany, was a 36 times on EBITDA on a business that was worth, in my opinion, probably somewhere between 12 to 16 times. Now, we all went through the usual process, closed auction. We did our due diligence. We, we put in, I think, in the teens, right? I can't remember exactly. And we lost out to that. We didn't know the final piece, but that we lost out to that multiple. And what we found out is that that private equity firm had missed out on so many deals yeah. that they had to do a deal. And this is where private equity can be a bit stupid. They, they, they overpaid on the premise that they're going to get it back over, over other things that they can do in the business over time. And then I, I don't know because how they, they want to debt. deploy the money because they're sitting there talking to their investors and all that. Kind of, I mean, just the momentum of the game they're playing just kind of led to that. And they might even take that and say, instead of getting, you know, as I said, the, the, the three to five return is, is what they want for the whole fund on that deal. They might, they might just make their money back, but mm -hmm. they've deployed the capital. They've kept their investors happy. Then they, they've got like a lifeline to continue to go and do other deals. So the next deal they might, they might be a bit more prudent. So there's all these things that go on that people don't understand. It's not just about your business. It's about the fund. It's about everything else that they're trying to do. But ultimately, like the only thing that matters, as I said, buy low, sell high, make more money than you've got. <laughs> Go to the wine bar. All right. Well, maybe we got some clickbait stuff. We're going to grab that short and we're going to just pump the hell out of it. <laughs> let's, not, let's, not, let's not run a, a, like a video sales letter with that as the title, right? Let's well, not do that. It, but I think one of the, the big takeaways, I would say agreed with your, how you finalized that, Nick. But also like one of the things that I describe to, because the people that are coming through our training program or hiring us for our dashboard or our CFO services, they're trying to shift their mindset away from top line revenue, solving, you know, driving down net income, playing the tax game, like truly like, hey, like if other people are getting out of their company, managing the asset, the founder or entrepreneur can do that too. But the, uh, what, one of my ways of describing what you just described or laid out, Nick, is entrepreneurs that are like the founder chasing revenue, essentially chasing revenue and driving down income and driving down net income to, uh, uh, you know, to not pay any, the least amount of taxes, you're, pl you're playing checkers. And what you just described is four dimensional chess. And like, those are moves that like, if you're not even aware, like, like, can you imagine if someone took a rook and just tried to skip it? It's like, well, no, that's the wrong game. And like what you just described is three dimensional chess compared to checkers. And there's just this mismatch of even conversations. Well, that's that's the reason why um, my my specific area is is helping people navigate sophisticated buyers, right? If you if you if you really want to condense it down, um, and not because not not that you have to be an expert in all areas of it, but but the gap that I see predominantly, and I'm talking about you know most of my clients are, are eight figures business owners, right? So they're not they're not startups or anything like that. They've built great businesses, but they don't understand how to navigate this 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 playing field. By mm -hmm. any stretch mm -hmm. and they worry about it because you know they've created something they probably didn't even think they could create right like you know a lot of the entrepreneurs they're quite humble people and they go wow i didn't expect i was going to create an eight-figure company mm -hmm. 
And now I'm worried as hell that I'm not going to get the return for all that work and sacrifice that we know is In part of entrepreneurship. <clears throat> so it is, it is a big problem. Um, but it doesn't take much to learn the basics. And one thing I say, and I'll, I'll give this as a kind of a really important tip for anyone listening to this is you've got to remember when you sell into private equity, or even if you sell into a strategic, quite often there's a value equation that's happening up the chain. And whatever thesis is in play in terms of why they're acquiring you, let's, let's say it is on EBITDA or revenue, whatever valuation uh, metric up the chain is, is being considered, as soon as they buy your company, your value is straight away attributed to their valuation. So let's say you sell a business for six times EBITDA, yep. but I've got a bigger business that's rolling out that we know is going to sell for 12 times. Automatically, the money straight away that you've been paid six times for is worth 12 times to me. So I've made six times the return just on you signing the deal. So if you know that, it's a good question to ask. You go, hold on, well, I know that you're worth this. I know you have a, so it's not six, which, mate. Which by the nine. way, by the way is exactly, I told you earlier, I made an offer for 180 million and I offered about a seven X. This was actually exactly why, because they had other businesses in their portfolio that were worth so much more that they couldn't actually let go of it for such a low price, right? They were like losing money to their investors. Nick. Well, yeah. Yeah. well, one last comment on this, because I know I, Walker, you wanted to uh, jump in is I had a client that was doing about six and a half million in EBITDA. They got an offer from a PE firm that was actually, it was, it was a strategic backed company backed by private equity. And we found out the game that was being played, Nick, like you said, and they, they were actually a legacy driven company and all this stuff. And we're like, we found out that they were going to sell the entire portfolio by the end of the year. And this is like hmm. in September. And the client was like 50 million bucks, not a dollar net, not a dollar below that. Like, oh yeah, sure, sure. The private equity guy comes in, flies into town, gets in his car. And he's like, well, you know, we've been thinking. He's like 50 million net, get out of my car if you don't believe that. And it was because they, they, we knew that. And they the PE firm literally almost like traded that privately held company with hundreds of employees over 90 days. They made like 50 some million dollars after buying my client for 50 million. And he got his first and second bite of the apple in 120 days by the end of the year. We, we did a transaction once again in a company I can't mention, but we paid uh, 45 million for the business. And because of the infrastructure, the synergies that we had, when we sold the company, we sold a big private equity exit. Um, that company was worth 400 million and that was in less than two but, years. I mean, look, just to be, play devil's advocate here. The guy that you sold, that you bought the company from for 44 million, that's probably a happy camper, yeah. right? Oh, he, he was, he was a, um, a skateboarding dude from in Canada. And I remember and really quirky dude. He yeah. didn't last on the board very long. Um, <laughs> but you know what he, you know what he did do? He did something really funny. Um, cause he was really quirky. He had this cleaner who'd been cleaning his offices for years. And when the transaction happened, he wrote her a check for five years worth of cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> because like, he, like, he's like, I, I don't know if you can have a job anymore now. Awesome. Your office will probably close. That's Here's awesome. Five years worth I love of that move. I think that's, I think that's fantastic. <clears throat> so do I. But like, you're right. Cares? You're 100 right. Like, the value that the private why... equity firm brought in that example was the 350 million or whatever. That's their job. That's what they do. And so I think for a lot of us to look at both of these stories and say like. You know, Ryan's client was 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 absolutely correct, saying like, "No, man, fifty million because it's like you're going to extract this so quickly. I want to I want to pigeonhole myself into the value you're bringing, also, and we'll do it together." Was kind of the pitch, right? But Nick, I mean, if private equity is able to do that over a two year period, I think that they deserve it. Yeah, well, this is this is the thing. What I what I I don't mind if that's the decision. 
<clears throat> what I do mind about is if, if the um, business owner doesn't Happy. know that, right? So like if, if there's some transparency around, okay, I'm going to give you 40 million and maybe my number, you know, I talk about life-changing number, that number might be 40 million. And I, I just want to say to them, listen, if that's your number, let's get you the number. But as we start to dig into your business and we start to look at the market and we start to look at the players and, and all the different opportunities, you know, if the business is worth more than that, do you want yeah. to go for more than that? Right? Like we now yeah. know the range. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll come back to me and say, listen, it's yeah. just 40 million, man. I don't care. Sometimes they'll say, really? And I'll say, well, listen, why don't we go for a bit more? I had a client recently where we had that, where they were worth, um, when I started 28 and we had an offer of 42, right? And my client's number was 30. Yeah. And nice. I said, we can do more here. And he's ecstatic because he's got another 10 million that he didn't think he was going to get. Right? You took well, half, I think. Right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always take half. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an Australian and you quit doing that, Nick. I'm not well, a charity, in- right? Like, you know, this is this is a business for me too, right? I'm just I'm just using my old hunting skills for another. I'm hunting something different now. Well, it, I told uh, you, I, I told, I've shown you my little Bobby, my Bobby Axelrod. That's friend. awesome. That's awesome. I mean, this is me. Like, you know, maybe not hedge funds, but in private equity, I was out there, like, you know. in reality in reality like because it's a serious question i i will absolutely take a percentage of what i think the upside is like a private equity firm would as well but i but i I, i'm doing it i think ethically because i'm saying listen at the end of the day if you're happy with that figure and we can get you more that's all upside to you and it's it's just as i said if they come back and say we don't want to do that i just want to get a deal done i'll I'll equally do that for them as well well, and I think Walker, what you, the question you asked and, and how Nikki responded is what our mission is with our business, with the Intentional Growth Academy and the financial modeling we're doing is to be able, what I want for someone is to be able to, like, let's say a business owner sitting there going, yeah, my, my normalized EBITDA is $2 million. Let's say it's a $20 million business, a 10X, just a little bit above yeah. um, maybe <laughs> the normal range of that. But it's, if, it, if it's a $20 million business. That's the intrinsic financial value. Let's say the cash flow valuation based on the risk. It's like this thing works at this valuation. You can do an ESOP, you can sell it to an acquisition entrepreneur all from the intrinsic value of 20 million, or Nick could help you take that to $35 million from all of the things we just talked about. But what I see you guys gets hung up on this, that three-dimensional chess is the terms like you talked about, Nick. It's like, oh, but this is how like, this is the smorgasbord of how you get your money and all the dances you have to do over four years to get the extra $15 million. All I ever want for any entrepreneur is to understand that and choose the pain that they want for the return that they're going to get. You know what I mean? Like, oh, like I, I have to do all this for the extra 15 million bucks. So be it. Or, but also like with Walker, with the acquisition entrepreneurs, I think that there's a very legit reason that someone should go select the person that could be the CEO not just to put them on payroll, but to then buy the company from them because they don't have someone internally and they might take slightly less money, but they're taking their their, their legacy, their people, the community, all that yep. shit that's really important to them that they've identified. We can't judge what someone wants. And if they said, that's what I'm willing to do, I think it's important for someone to know if I have an acquisition entrepreneur or search funder compared to a small mid-market private, private equity firm, what the hell is the difference of what they're going to do with my company afterwards and the money I get? And so few people can clearly see those trade-offs that they're just kind of guessing. What, what but, that, but that's the awareness piece, right? Like, like, and I agree that there's no right or wrong answer. So, so you know, it, it kind of, I often say to people, you know, forget about the price, but worry about the terms. And the terms dictates what you're going to do next. 
And like, you know, a lot of my clients, the reason that they'll do something with me is they want to sell their company yeah. twice. Like right. Their actual objective is, yep. and the only yep. way they're going to do that is with private equity, right? Yeah. yeah. And and quite frankly, probably to be the platform acquisition for private equity. So they're the ones who get to do the, the buy and build, the roll mm -hmm. up, right? Mm -hmm. And and, it, and it's a legitimate strategy because, and then but what's interesting about that is if you know that, say, t say 12 to 36 months in advance of a, of a process, you can build the company for that strategy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right you know and and again for your stuff if someone wants to wants wants the lights off strategy right where they want to kind of just go off to the pastures you can build back from that as well but i think you're 100 right it's about understanding the money piece and the next act piece mm -hmm. and work out making sure people know their options and then mm -hmm. you can you can advise them on what path's the best path walker with the do with you guys the, ever work with um companies that go public rather than sell the private equity like I've, I've spent a lot of my time and why do you say no why would you say no? <laughs> um you, i'll be honest i don't understand it as well as i understand private equity so i play the lane i know but um there is another answer and i'll make it quick is people think that uh, an ipo is an exit that's right but it's really a capital raise if you understand mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. and there's lots of fees and lots of hurdles to jump over and you actually lose a lot of control you certainly you know you might have higher levels of um uh, liquidity through that, but it's not easy to access capital because of the different governance structures and, and control protocols you have. That, that's about as far yeah. as I know from it, but I know a lot of people who have IPO'd and have actually regretted it and didn't realize right. it wasn't really an exit. Yeah, especially because of the predatory funding associated with the investment banks. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's the regulations yeah. that really screw you. It's, it's what you can do once you're suddenly in that type of um, yeah. uh, setup. Anyway, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time Walker. looking at sort of like pre IPO privately held companies and trying to understand and, and, you know, why, why would someone sell the private equity versus going public and all these different things? In other, in other words, like if you can fund growth capital for pre IPO from the investor side, passive investors. Okay. Here, let me just say it. I get a lot of people that join the acquisition mm -hmm. lab, right? And they're like, look, um, now that I'm here and, the, and it's weird because it's almost like it's almost like the richer they are, the the more likely they are to say this, which I didn't expect to, at the beginning. Like, you know, and like we've got people who have taken companies public through the Nasdaq and exited for tens of millions of dollars and all the rest of it. And they join us because they're like, I'm trying to figure out how to do these like, you know, like sub 20 million dollar ac acquisitions. I don't even understand this space. Right. But here's the thing is they a lot of times they'll say, like, Walker, I want you to help me buy a business and then hire a manager and I don't want to spend time on it. And I'm just like, this is yep. a terrible idea. Okay. And, and like, you know, the book is called buy then build because like Ryan, I sell hard work and you're wanting me to buy then chill. Right. And what they're really saying is like, how do I, how do I capture the returns available in the private marketplace Value. without actually having to like do any work. Right. And so I've started to realize oh, like, that's well, so great. okay, if I really solving this problem, what would it look like? And I started being like, you need to buy companies with management teams. You need to buy companies that have, you know, all the things we talk about, revenue, infrastructure, earnings. You need to talk about, you know, look at these companies that are probably one to three years out from going public, right? And getting, getting that um, liquidity event for the investors um, and then be able to fund, you know, the sort of like $5 million capital raise to get them across the across the line. And just because a lot of things with the jobs act and everything else, people can top secret, they can like self list on public markets right now and avoid 
I mean, there's, there's a lot, well, there's a big reason why yeah, the SPACs haven't worked, right? And, and, you know, for people who are listening to this and don't kind of understand that world, you know, these special purpose acquisition yeah. companies, right? You know, they're, they're, they're effectively, you know, raising money to then buy businesses to then list. What you've got to kind of think about here, right, is traditionally you only list, and this is traditional the, the way it used to be thought about before the dot-com started blowing up. You know, you'd list when you ran out of private money. Right. right. So you go to public money. Like I, I need to, I need to fundraise. I can't, I can't go to any other investors. So now I'm going to go out to the public and I'm going to do it. That, that, yeah. that's, that was the traditional view of it. And, and, you know, a lot of people say to me, cause, cause of the, the bigger exits I've been involved in the ones that are in the billions, you know, the Blackstones, the El Catan, some of the bigger private equity firms, they'll build companies up to list because there's no other bigger private right. equity firms exactly. that buy the bloody thing. Well, and, well, and interesting, uh, like how how you just said that Nick and Nick or Walker, you'd said that, you know, well, if private equity can make that much money, they should be doing that because that's prudent and fiduciary. But what I always get back to guys, and it's because I just, I love macroeconomics and monetary policy too much. And it's just goofy, I think, but like someone has to make money somewhere, somehow, some way in the food chain. And then it just always goes back. I mean, what's going on right now is the U.S. is going to have no one that buys its debt at some point. What the hell they're going to do? The Fed is going to have to buy it then. So what we just keep doing is this like, well, what happens with Blackstone can't monetize through actual cash that we buy shit with their investments that they make. And maybe they're, the pool's big enough where everything kind of equalizes. And that's where I don't have the, ex the exposure, Nick, that you have where the bigger you get, like you can just write off a $400 million auto dealer that doesn't make any money because it doesn't matter. Like, and it just, the scale is maybe above most of us, but it's somewhere someone has to make some freaking well, cash flow. I, the reason I think IPOs, to Walker's point, I think the reason IPOs become more attractive is because, as we said, private equity valuations are depressed exactly. because of the cost of capital. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, so whereas you used to be able to make more money from the big multiples, if, if, so two things are going on. A, the transactions, the, the big transactions at high multiples are still happening, but the quality of the business in terms of how it's built, some of the work I advise on and you do, Ryan, you know, if, if, if a private equity firm sees it, sees a brilliantly built business with fantastic financials, they've got succession plans, two layers deep, they've got multiple customer acquisition channels in place, all the, all the triggers, right? Mm -hmm. They're still going to sell for high valuation because the risk has been removed as best it can. But all those ones that aren't quite there, right? They kind of could be good, but they're not good. They're going to sell for less. And then if you're the entrepreneur who's got that, you, you know, you might sit there and say, well, what's, what are my other options? And there's a certain level of scale that you can get to there where you might think actually maybe a public offering is the way to do it. Mm. And I hear of um, strategies like agglomeration where you've got consortiums of companies coming together in a sector and then listing all at the same time. Mm -hmm. The issue with that, even though those businesses might, might generate quite a lot of cash flow and dividends can be taken out and things like that, the share prices still plummet. So mm. then I sit and say, well, okay, if the share prices are, are, are dropping, how is someone going to get a, a, a different type of capital event from that? They can't. Right. Right. And it so there's, lots, there's a lot of complexity it's, here. It's, it's one of those right, where overall. like when it comes from the investing side, the buy then chill, right? I look at it in terms of like, well, I could, you know, buy, I could invest into one of these companies that's like getting close to sell the private equity. But number one, they don't need the money. They're not looking for growth capital. Right. And, and number two, um, you know, what I like about management teams that want to go public is that to your point, they're not looking for an exit. They, they want to keep growing and they want to get that got the energy cost of left capital in the, yeah. and they want to get the right publicity and all the rest of it. But they, but, but like if we can also provide a way where they can sort of edge around the kind of predatory in, uh, investment banks, that's the word. I mean, you know, I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. 
then it's like, then they can actually have a successful business while have it while expanding their impact and providing a liquidity event to their investors. And so this is where my brain has been sort of going the last nine months. But, yeah, it is interesting. And the thing that I, I'm probably not as um, clued up on is at what point, and if you asked me this, I wouldn't be able to answer it, honestly, is at what point does it make sense? At what size of business and scale does it make sense for that to be a proper yeah. consideration, right? right? Right. And and obviously you can look at the Facebooks and you can look at all those sort of things and Microsoft's and well, actually, yeah, it makes sense right. for them because they're just a bloody big. Well, but, so here, here's what do you guys think? Because this is how, if you force me to answer right now, and I don't, I'm not saying that this is right at all. I'm just like, if I had to, because I have family that I know and a, plenty of friends that are working for companies that are, that are going to go public or have tried to go public. And one of them was supposed to go public in 2020, early 20, at late 2021 or first part of 2022. And I was just like, you missed the boat. Like, the, I don't <laughs> don't know what else to say. <laughs> like, and, and, and so like, and here's why I would answer it like this is because the, the game of going that direction is the cost of capital is lower. You have the mean stocks, the Robin hood, the, the not, a, not sophisticated investor where the funds are flowing a good story. And back to, it's so funny because I was explaining this to my wife. She's like, and I was explaining to like what, why people would go public and no joke, you guys. She goes, well, that would be like a unicorn. There's a reason why it's called a unicorn. That's exactly what I said, Nick. And I was like, pretty much this extinct, is right. Yeah. And, and she goes, <laughs> and I'm like, but it, it like, there was a reason it was a unicorn is because there was a specific reason for this is because it's going to take like Jeff Bezos or Zuckerberg or whoever, it's going to take 12 years to cash flow this thing because the idea is good enough. It's like, okay, well, that makes sense to keep the cap raise going and keep the, the investors on the story to get to the cash flow bridge. There has to be a bridge to somewhere. And I think we just, I just laughed so hard. But, but I think what's so crazy now is the fact that the music stopped and this uh, company I'm talking about missed the IPO. I don't know how in God's name they'll ever be able to tell a story that that thing will cash flow in any relative timeline that makes sense to anybody so the story has to still be the in 10 years but the cost of capital and then the ipo market all this is depressed what possibly i like them to keep funding so is it a high growth company it's got to be a high and growth I'm, company if there's no cash flow is that what's going on it is it is but it's not just tech it's tech enabled services so you got you know a thousand three hundred and fifty thousand dollar engineers or whatever it is and it's like good you know what i mean so like low growth. yeah my, my, I, I guess mean, there are private equity firms buying off revenue multiples in specific conditions, which is which is kind of not what they're designed to do. Most most private equity firms are buying off EBITDA, right? But where it works, um, which I find I find this quite fascinating. I've I've been involved in a couple of deals recently where this has happened. It's usually a private equity backed strategic. It's where they've already mapped forward the synergies of buying that in, right? Because they've already got the customer base asset or something else that they can just mm -hmm. turn the pipe on. So they're forward projecting through the due diligence process where they are going to get the cash flow or or the or the value from that. Um, but they'll they'll buy a they'll buy, they'll pay a revenue multiple for it if they if they can see that part of the of the pathway. Mm -hmm. And I often say to people now, if you've got a tech business and you're thinking it has to be IPO because that's the way it was done a decade ago or whatever it is, it, not necessarily. But you still have to work out where this is going to land. And and the other thing I think it's important to understand is remember we're talking a lot about. An exit means you walk away with freedom, wealth, all this sort of thing. Remember, an exit is also just the passing on of your asset to someone else who can do something else with it. 
mm-hmm. right? You know, they've got the uh, resources or the strategy, the know-how to do something, to take what you've created and do something. Of course, you get paid for that, which is awesome. But the other thing is there are going to be things that they have that you just don't have access to or, or potentially won't have access to in that mm-hmm. time frame. So it's, Super helpful. There's a lot of things going that, on. That's mm-hmm. so funny because it's such it's, it's such so an opposing view of uh, of starting through acquisition, right? I mean, again, you're talking about people who are like, I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to go out and like, you know, buy, buy a business rather than starting from scratch. And they're not necessarily, I mean, almost pulling full circle to your question earlier, right? It's like, these aren't very sophisticated yeah. teams. They're like, no, I'm targeting businesses that are going to sell between, you know, three, four, four and a half, you know, times SDE and then go out and, you know, pay the loan off and build equity and, and go to work and grow something for myself and my family, get that first 5 million in the, in the, in the bag and then move on and do it again. Yeah. And I think that as a, as a, as a wealth sort of building strategy makes a lot of sense. And I often say, don't go for the yeah, Hail Mary exactly. to use a term yeah. in your world, right? Like, you know, if anyone comes to me and says, oh, my business is a unicorn, I'm going to do this. I say, I say, what's the number that's going to change your life? You know, and that's going to be a few million bucks probably, right? And right. do that once, then right. do it again, then do it again, build the stuff that you teach. And you, you're going to get to a stupid number, a number that, you know, is probably more than you ever expected you get in your life, but you're going to do it through hard work, your point beforehand, Ryan, and you're going to do it through consistent practice and application of the, of the basics. Well, and I, you know, I it's think- not, it's not. It's, it's not a get rich quick thing. <laughs> well, I think you that's know? what, if I were to kind of, that kind of loop together some of these dots that we've been talking about is like everything that you talked about, Nick, like is so important to understand the landscape, because even if someone says that sounds like a lot of work or whatever it might be, it's like, well, that's fine. Well, then that's not your path or that I'm willing to navigate those waters. And like all of this are just choices by someone, but I think it's the, I just think about my grandpa before he passed, we'd be playing golf with him. He's like in his mid seventies and I'd go up there and I'd try and just, <laughs> you know, I suck at golf guys. Like I, I just like all rigid. I'm trying to just beat that, you know, beat that ball as far as I can. And it slice and my grandpa would go up and it was like hundred yards, hundred yards, hundred yards <laughs> in the hole, hundred yards, hundred. And, he, and he'd be just crushing me. And it's like, that's the cash flowing game. And then you can start shooting for the moon and doing crazy things if you can afford those kind of risks. And a lot of it depends on the size of the company where you can then kind of gamble with it. But I think it's so important because it's all whatever path someone wants to take once they understand the landscape. And so Walker, before, I don't know how much time more you got, how much more time you guys have, but a little bit more, uh, I think, color on the inside of people's mindset on, if we've got the time, on the acquisition lab attendees and participants of like they're coming in there where are they coming from and why and kind of what are the expectations i mean you've kind of alluded to you got some uber rich people coming in there that they want to buy and chill but you got like what are kind of the general makeup because i think it's important for someone to understand the options i mean there's there's like i get a lot of people with advanced degrees from great universities that like they graduated you know 10 or 15 years ago right and i know that's such a weird description but like i just see it over and over and over and, and it's like you get these high-performing, intelligent individuals that, you know, spent the last 15 years, like making that guy rich. And now they're like, wait a minute. And they sort of figure out what Nick is talking, you know, it's like, I just sold a business and that guy made all the money. Like, wait, what about me? Right. And so they start to figure mm-hmm. out, I've got the skill set and I'm ready to sort of make this leap. And like, you know, maybe I've got a kid or three and I don't really want to, you know, leave the walled palace and start some, you know, SaaS business that with no customers. Right. Um, that, that's, that's a big profile. Mm-hmm. And, and my most favorite um, is the one that um, is a successful startup entrepreneur, ran the business, exited, 
And then they're like, oh my God, I'm not doing that startup part again. It is so hard. And I'm like, I know. And so they're, they're the ones that get it the most because they know how to operate a company. They know, they understand what it feels like to exit a company. And they're like, I just want to like get on base and then get started. I'm like, exactly. And exactly. And that's the real bullseye, right? That's the person that really gets it that, that, uh, that we've been talking about. And I think that, you know, Ryan, you asked early, like, we never landed the question, but you're like, all these people are getting on this conveyor belt wanting to learn about buy businesses. Like, why is that? Why now? And, you know, it just comes back to the fact that I still believe, okay, like, again, 96% of companies are like under 1 million in revenue, right? And it's like, and then it's like, you know, mm-hmm. 99.5 or under 5 million in revenue. It's like 50%. It's like 48% of the US economy is run by these small businesses owned by baby boomers that need to change hands by the end of the decade. Mm -hmm. We're literally looking at like, what is going to be the single greatest opportunity of our entire generation, as long as you can actually Mm -hmm. execute on this plan. And so the fact that it's getting a lot of attention is just because it's like, hey, hey, yo, there's this enormous transition. You should jump in and and get yours. Yep. Yep. Are you guys familiar with ITR economics at all? Um, I, hell no. Oh, and you always have the excuse of over the pond. I right? know that you love this stuff, right? I yeah. and, and I always learn something new every time we speak. So, so the, the, the reason I brought that up is it, it, it's this framework of this puzzle that you just encapsulated Walker, where they're talking about the demographic cliff. So they're coming on, they're a preferred eco- economist for Vistage. So they're coming on once a quarter now where we're doing economic updates on all their data and then M&A updates on debt to equity ratios, volume of deals, all that kind of stuff. But they've got this 2030 Great Depression that they've been forecasting for decades. They've got a 94.7% accuracy over uh, 70 years. And all they're saying is like, and I, I was just, uh, I, I had the podcast this morning. I'm like, Guess what? I'm not a genius, but I do know that there's 80 million people that are going to be in diapers. Are they saying years. 2030 or 2040? Is the is the is the global yep. depression? The, the U.S. Oh, I don't know. Actually, that's a good question. I should ask. Yeah, U.S. And it's really the decoupling of supply chains. So, you know, all these governments with a, a high amounts of debt. But the main thing driving it, outside of all those nuances, is you have all of the stats you just laid down, Walker. Like, and which is why I've been at this for 10 years is. I can't day trade very well, but I do know, I do know that 80 million people are going to be 10 well, years listen, older this in 10 means years. That we have seven years where people should learn how to buy a business, hire Ryan and grow it, then hire Nick and exit. And you got to execute on your three to five year plan before the global depression starts in, in seven years. And there you go. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you, can, you can, you can join Elon at the wine club. Yeah. And then, and you know what? I, I, I think that sums it up Walker perfectly. And, and when I said to the ITR guy, I'm like, and he said something like that, that's about what you do. And I go, and so how would you handle this? He goes, buy a company, grow it, and then sell it to your enemy <laughs> in, in 2029. <laughs> Well, we, we can help with all of that, everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's awesome. Now, this has been good fun. This has been good fun, guys. I think um, there's a lot of, uh, I, I don't think you can summarize this. <laughs> I, I was going to say, and well, that's a wrap. Should, I don't know if there's I anything. Think that, I think that is a wrap. It's been a pleasure, so gents. I think Love we should it. do this. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do this again. See you guys. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? 
It really helps me, it helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.